Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And this weekend, we're celebrating Veterans Day. And it's no better time to kind of take the pulse of some key veterans issues in the United States. And to do that with me, there's no better person who's very familiar with our area and uh, very familiar with veterans issues. She's Allison Jaslow. She's the CEO of the Iraq and Afghanistan's Veterans of America. And uh, Allison, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, this show is going to air on Veterans Day, so in light of that, uh, what 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 uh, you're engaged in a lot of different issues impacting our, our veterans. But what's kind of your take on the state of our veterans uh, the, here, Veterans Day 2023? You know, I think you can point to a lot of different issues and call them veterans issues. But you know, I would encourage your listeners to think about the fact that you know, veterans are all of us, right? They come from every part of the country, every type of background. And so I think in that same vein, veterans are feeling the same way a lot of Americans are right now, that this is a perilous time in the world and in our country. Um, I think many are desiring greater leadership in our country than we are seeing today. Um, And so I think when I think about this Veterans Day and what issues matter to veterans more than anything else. I think it's very basic and it's no different than every American that we're, we're looking for the leadership that we need in these times. And I hope that folks can look to us veterans as an example um, and hopefully can like follow our lead and lead in their individual communities um, and or hopefully our elected leaders. I know, you know this is a politics show, Robin, you and I met in politics. And I think like if more of our elected leaders would put country before themselves or their own political agenda, we would all feel better about where we're at in the country today. And I think that that is, it is true for veterans in terms of an issue, but I think it's true for most Americans right now, just given the times. I, I'm, I'll dive right into it then. That was one of my topics I was going to bring up maybe a little later, but um, I think a lot of us um, are, are just really concerned right now with the state of our country our government, our politics. And I talk to more and more people who are concerned that we, we, we've got folks uh, with a very strong partisan right, the very strong partisan left. And most people I talk to are kind of in the middle. And one of the few mm-hmm. institutions 
out there that where Americans still have trust is the military. And it seems like a lot of veterans who run for office seem to un understand that and know that while you have strong convictions, you got to kind of meet in the middle. Um, are there formal efforts by your group and others to maybe recruit people to run or encourage people to run to help us break this divide? Well, we definitely develop a lot of our members into member leaders um, so that they can be advocates, not just on the issues that we champion, but back in their own communities. You know, I think I'm a firm believer that there's roles for all of us to play, right? Um, and so some people aren't a fit to be candidates and to be in elected office, but, you know, maybe a fit to at least use their voice to tell their story to help influence change, right? Um, but I think, listen, I'm the first to say, and you and I've talked about this before, that like many veterans are some of the best among us, but not all of them. So we have to be careful about thoughtfully parsing through even the veteran population and who we elevate as well. Um, but I just, you know, I hope that uh, whether it's recruiting, um, or even just encouraging people to step up and lead in this moment that I that I hope that it's not just veterans, but the veterans are like inspiring others to step up and lead in the same way. And with the same sort of like, you know, I tell people all the time that I left the army, but the army values stayed with me. Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal courage. I still try to wake up every day and live by those values. And I hope that like, if I bring that into whatever other work that I do, that I on an individual level can be an example to other people to try and live in a sort of more values-based servant leader approach. And I think that the more of us who can step up and do that, I think the better, the better things could be over time, or at least that's my hope. That's what, that's what keeps me filled with hope. <laughs> well, I, and I think of John McCain on the Republican side, and I think of Jim Webb who you used to work for on the Democratic side, mm -hmm. kind of the ideals of people who had very strong convictions that made them members of their own party, but weren't afraid to reach out and even criticize their own party and, and do things what they viewed as the best interest of the country. And we, we just don't see that as much anymore. It's out there. Uh, and certainly you don't have to be a veteran to be an advocate for veterans' issues or the good of the country, but it just... Um, it, it seems like there's a big opening there for people with those values to step up here right now. Yeah. And, you know, as somebody uh, who spent time being a college professor recently, and maybe you have a unique perspective given, you know, your role in the classroom as well, Robin, I actually am really optimistic right now that once we get to a critical mass of uh, millennials and Gen Zers who I actually think that they have a thirst for a different type of leadership. Um, and in a democracy, you have to actually have the will for the, that type of leadership, right? Um, and I think that we're close to getting a critical mass of, you know, those citizens who are also participating in our democracy, who can also influence elections that will elevate leaders who maybe look and feel a little different than we've been experiencing over the, like the last 20 years. Uh, that's my hope anyhow. I share that optimism. I think this younger generation uh, gives me a lot of uh, hope for the future in, in that they can um, clean up some of the mess that uh, my generation's made of <laughs> some issues. But uh, um, speaking of hyper-partisanship and, and, and decisions mm -hmm. that really kind of harm the country, one thing that I know you've been out front on recently um, is the, the, the efforts, trying to overcome the efforts of one U.S. senator 
uh, who's playing by the rules of the Senate, but holding up hundreds of important nominations um, in our in our national defense. I mean, it sounds crazy, but can you provide just a little background for our listeners who may not be aware and what what you you and your organization have been doing to try to get this um, impasse resolved at a very critical time? Yeah, so Senator Tommy Tuberville from Alabama has put a hold on military promotions since uh, the spring that need to be confirmed by the Senate. Um, everything from, you know, the commander of Central Command, which is, you know, no longer an abstract talking point in Washington, D.C., literally, without that commander being moved forward recently, like we had no commander overseeing the Middle East. And with everything that's going on there, um, I actually think one of the reasons why you saw member of his, of his own party finally going to the floor um, to help move through this impasse is because of what happened in Israel and the stakes being so high. Uh, the stakes were high before, before now, um, but I think there's a greater sense of urgency because again, it's not, any, it's not a hypothetical concern or a hypothetical risk to our national security it became very, very real, especially because you know, Israel is one thing, but in the Middle East, we have troops in Syria and Iraq who've been targeted post everything that's gone down um, over the past month. And so, you know, I, I think a, a couple of things. One, it is, you know, it's, a, it's, people can talk Senate procedure all they want, but when you talk about somebody putting their own personal agenda above the country. Like, I feel like there is no greater example than what Tommy Tuberville is doing right now. He is one person in the United States Senate who wants to insist on holding up promotions that impact individual people's livelihoods, but also impact our national security for the sake of his own political agenda, which members of his own party will, will say that there's other ways that he could protest that are not like this. But he cares so much about his personal ideology that he's willing to risk our national security over it. Um, and that's a that's a really sad state for us to be in. I mean, of course, I don't want like the national security to be risked generally, um, but the fact that one politician wants to die on this hill in a way that it could be so consequential to our country, to our troops, you know, to even us being able to defend our own borders. It's just a real sad state of affairs, in my opinion. Uh, and, and, you know, I did confront the Senator personally. And one of the reasons why I did that is because I believed he was, you know, giving a lot of lip service to his colleagues in the Senate, giving a lot of lip service to reporters, but didn't have to speak to, speak to the individual people whose lives we're hung in the balance. Um, and after we asked our members whether they stood with, you know, the DOD and the VA on the policies that he's objecting to, and they overwhelmingly said that they did, I, you know, with confidence could go confront him and make sure that he was speaking to those very people um, who, again, he's, you know, compromising their lives and in effect our national security for from the, you know, from the top down, not just those commanders, but the, the troopers on the ground level who deserve leadership. <laughs> Do you feel confident? And I know you've got excellent contacts on the Hill. I know a couple of these nominations, they, 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 they have gotten through because Republicans have stood up to the senator in their own party. But do you feel confident that the logjam is going to break further and more of these will get done? Or is this just going to be just a few at this point? 
I do think so. I think the big breakthrough was his colleagues in his own caucus deciding that they were done having like behind the scenes conversations of which I'm sure they were trying to encourage him. And, you know, their variety of like retired general officers who I think who have engaged with him behind the scenes. But once they decided to go public with their opposition to what he's doing, I think that that, that means that there will be continued progress. Uh, they didn't mince words with how they felt about it. And I, um, you know, I actually ran into Senator Sullivan who was a key leader and he's also, um, you know, Marine Corps officer. Uh, he was a key leader in sort of like moving this forward last week. Um, and I think Tim, you know, A, for his courage and finally stepping up and doing it. And I, I think that now that they have, they're not gonna back down. Even if it means, you know, for them, they want a procedural change in the Senate to be a last resort. But if it feels like the only way to, to get around this one Senator who's dug in, then they might even support a procedural change at the end of the day if they have to. So I'm optimistic that it's, you know, it's taken a long time to get here, but that we will ultimately break through this. And honestly, to return to the theme of hope, if it can give you hope, like the fact that it sucks that it got all the way to this point, but that the better voices are prevailing here, I think is going to be a good good news story at the end of the day. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson. My guest today is Allison Jaslow, who is the CEO of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. It's a very appropriate topic this weekend, Veterans Day as we celebrate. Um, Allison is uh, knows the area. She was chief of staff to former Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, so she's very knowledgeable of uh, of our region here um, in the Midwest. We've been talking a little bit about uh, some of the key issues facing veterans this Veterans Day and the hold on nominations in the Senate. I wanted to keep the focus on Congress a little bit and the, um, the dysfunction we've had uh, in Congress with the historic number of votes to elect a new speaker. There are some key issues that are being held up budget-wise um, and uh, some key deadlines coming up. But um, what are your overall impressions of of the new speaker, Mike Johnson from Louisiana? Um, do you think that he's going to be somebody that will be willing to compromise since the Republicans control the House, the Democrats control the Senate and the presidency? Or is this going to, do you think this is going to be more, are we going to get more of this partisan chip and uh, uh, dysfunction and stagnation? Um, you know, I think a lot of folks are just learning about Mike Johnson. <laughs> so everybody's just sort of both, you know, taking in what we see in real time, but also letting his results speak for themselves. Um, I think that there's optimism that he might be able to engage in dialogue better than it feels like, you know, some leaders in Congress have been able to in the past. I don't know yet that dialogue will result in compromise though. But again, when you talk about the stakes being great and there being just like, you know, huge forcing functions in Congress, like we're looking at another shutdown. Um, the government funding runs out on November 17th. I don't know if they're going to figure out a way to come up with some kind of compromise or whether we're just going to kick the can down the road again. We will see. And it's going to be 
You know, he's getting a really early test uh, during his tenure in leadership because it'll be, you know, roughly three weeks in to see what kind of metal he has, not only as a leader, but also as a negotiator. And candidly, he, he just hasn't been tested at any level in this regard yet. And so we're all going to have to just sort of wait and see. And the big test will be, and my understanding is, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the, the funding for um, Israel and Ukraine um, is going to be separate from the, the regular budget bills, correct, that are passed as part of the ongoing government operations? I mean, that's what they're trying to do. You know, the House passed Israel funding last week, uh, but it also included some cuts to the IRS. So... I don't know if that's going to have any hope in the Senate. Um, we'll see. There could be a lot of individual things that play themselves out. And then to your point, it is possible that a compromise could get cobbled together just to, you know, keep us from shutting down again. But it it remains to be seen. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, and a lot of people are pointing to that as kind of the turning point in the Biden administration, where his he seemed to be doing well. The polls showed support. Um, that withdrawal, uh, per, perhaps, you know, obviously wasn't the smoothest operation. Uh, but in fairness, it seemed to reflect most Americans' views that they wanted out. But what you've talked to, I'm sure, a lot of Afghanistan war vets and you're an Iraq war vet. What's the view of that? Is the feeling that that was mishandled and he, or should he have stayed or should he have stayed longer and tried to do the withdrawal later? Or what, what's the general impression of veterans on, on how that was handled? I mean, I think veterans were as fatigued as the American public by the war. I think any veterans who also served in Afghanistan just knew that what we were hoping to accomplish here just couldn't be accomplished at the end of the day. And so at what point do you just decide to pack it up and go home? I think veterans also agree with most Americans that we could have executed our withdrawal a little better. Um, and then I think what is something that like is an issue that I am both working on and keeping my finger on the pulse on is we did not do a good job of making sure that our allies who we promised special immigrant visas to had the opportunity to get out before we pulled out. And so what we're dealing with in the veteran community is a lot of veterans who are getting direct contact from their Afghani interpreters or other allies, because we had allies in the military that we were training, et cetera who now fear for their lives and their families' lives. Um, and they feel a personal responsibility because even though the United States made a promise to these individuals, like it was the individual who was serving alongside them that in effect was the messenger. And so a lot of veterans are carrying that like personal responsibility for making that promise and carrying the, the burden themselves for worrying about them and whether they can come back or will ever get out of Afghanistan and get to safety somewhere. Um, and so the the weight on individual soldiers who, who have served or Marines, um, I just, I can't overstate how there's like continued anguish in the military community on just based on that one key factor. And it is far from being resolved through the State Department. Um, and, you know, the worst part is, you know, they deal with panicked calls. Many of these vets who have 
relationships with folks who are still stuck there. Um, you know, they deal with a lot of heartache and I think struggle from a mental health perspective when they hear the panic in these folks' voices. And then there's the flip side of that is when there isn't outreach happening, they fear for the worst. You know, that the, the Taliban finally found them, et cetera. And so that's a long way to say that like, yes, veterans were like the rest of American people and like, okay with us leaving, but like the rest of the American people, we think we could have gone out, gotten out in a, a better fashion than we all observed on the TV screens. And I think veterans are here to say that there are also individual lives that were compromised as a part of it as well. One issue that's been an ongoing concern for a number of years is the Veterans Administration uh, health care um, <laughs> for veterans. And I know that's gone through periods where it's been uh, fairly bad and, and uh, there have been uh, different proposals for reform. Um, where, where does that stand right now uh, from your perspective? Is that are they doing a better job or, or is it about the same or can they do better? How, how would you how would you grade that? Um, I would answer that in two ways. One, I think the current administration has done about as best a job as you can, um, especially given the fact that we had the most sweeping investment in veterans health care in decades when the PAC Act was passed to get presumption for, um, you know, diseases that are affiliated with toxic exposure, which extended from my generation who, you know, I slept next to a place called Camp Trash Can for 15 months, which is a giant burn pit at the Baghdad International Airport. And there were many other vets of my generation who experienced exposure to burn pits, but also there are toxic exposures that other generations of veterans dealt with that weren't getting treated, that were all rolled up into the PACT Act. And with the greater investment in veterans' health care and benefits also means that there's going to be greater demand on the healthcare system. And so where I my you know tip my hat to the administration and specifically Dennis McDonough is there could be a lot of incentive to actually want to like pump the brakes and not, you know, overly promote that there's new benefits because you might be worried about, you know, demand overwhelming the system. They both really wanted to get veterans access to the care and benefits that they deserved and worked overtime to build capacity internally in the health system to make sure that they could keep up with that demand. And so have really made some great strides over the last calendar year with hiring of staff, et cetera, to make sure that there was no, uh, to make sure that the VA was able to adequately keep up with demand. And that, you know, additionally, the access issues, like it's one thing if you can have the care, but if you can never get the appointment, then you're never gonna get treated, right? Um, to make sure that that is, is as much as they could control wasn't a factor. Um, that's in real time. I think bigger picture, we have to think about the fact that the uh, veteran population is going to continue to dwindle and we've got this large healthcare system. And what does it look like into the future? You know, nobody wants to, it's like military bases, like nobody wants their VA to be shut down um, or their VA community based outpatient clinic to be shut down. But as the veterans population shrinks and, and changes shape, what will the, the VA system look like long term? Um, there was a commission that was supposed to study that this particular Congress, but it fell apart. And so I think there's a lot of question marks about what the way ahead looks like for for VA healthcare in this country, both you know system wide or just how we may deliver it into the you know let's call it like the next 20 years. 
one issue that I know that's been uh, dear to you as a woman has been has been the, uh, the the role of women in combat and women veterans. And there was a very historic nomination here recently that I'm sure meant a lot to you. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit and just generally how, I guess, how women are doing in the armed forces? There were some very important issues here that that uh, I know have been talked about and addressed. Is that going better now where women are feeling more a, a, a part of the armed forces as they should, or is there still a little bit of a disconnect there? So I think the historical moment you're referencing is we have the first woman chief of naval operations. Um, she yeah. will also be the first woman to, to be a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and it's huge, not just because she's a first, but stepping back, you know, I used to talk about how there was not just a glass ceiling, but an iron ceiling for women in the military. Because prior to women being permitted to be in combat roles, which has just happened in the last decade, um, even though I served in combat, like I couldn't be in a combat identified role. And without being able to be in combat roles and also take uh, commands that are combatant commands, can you even ascend into being either on the Joint Chiefs or a chair of the Joint Chiefs? And so there was a ceiling on women's progression just based on where we were allowed to serve prior to, you know, recent uh, years and policy changes that happened under, under the, uh, the Obama administration. Um, but, you know, fast forward, we've of course made this great progress. It is wonderful to see, um, you know, a woman singing as a member of the Joint Chiefs now, but progress takes a long time. You know, it was only in the eighties that the first women were graduating from West Point. Um, and, you know, even though women are now being fully integrated across the armed services, it's gonna take a generation or so before, you know, a lot of the adverse effects are kind of ironed out along the way too, right? Like first you have women serving more broadly in the military and sort of the culture change that needs to take place for them to feel welcome as peers, et cetera. But with women going into combat arms, like there's, they're starting as lieutenants and as, you know, privates. It's going to take some time until they become, you know, it, you're seeing some of this now before they start becoming company commanders and battalion commanders. And, and once everybody has to report to women leaders in those sectors of the military and, and understand that that's like a world order that they're living in, can the like true culture change actually take place, you know, and that's going to take time. I mean, I, I was sworn into the military in 2004. Um, many of my peers are just now taking battalion command. And that's, in the grand scheme of things, still lower on the totem pole. You have, you know, a platoon, a company, um, and then a battalion. And so it's folks who have been in for 19 or 20 years who are just stepping up to battalion command. And so it'll take another 20, 40 years, I think, until until we really feel like the military that we've dreamed of for women is a reality. Slow progress, I guess, is is how you, you would put it. Yeah. It's moving in the right direction. Uh, well, you've given us a lot of uh, 
hopeful uh, uh, thoughts today on, on this as we celebrate Veterans Day in our country, and I'm very grateful for the time. Uh, I'm, a, I'm especially grateful to hear that you're optimistic on, again, the leadership issue, and I think, I think we need that. I think we would all agree we need more leaders like that. So um, Allison Jaslow, again, has been my guest today on Heartland Politics. She's the CEO of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Allison, thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thank you for having me, uh, Robin. And, uh, you know, thank you for thinking that doing something on Veterans Day with a veteran was worthwhile, too. So it's been a pleasure. Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.